This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Let's test your skills of deduction. This is where I describe something and you try to figure out what it is. So are you ready? Many of these things look like intricate microscopic sculptures, or maybe jewelry. In some cases, I think they look like they could be tiny alien brains, or maybe miniature puffer fish, you know, the ones with the spines that pop out. And even though these are really small... They're amazingly strong and can last a long, long time. Have you figured out what I'm talking about? Could you use just a few more hints? All right, here are a couple more. Many plants depend on them to reproduce. And for your last hint, people that suffer from summer allergies know their name and most likely dislike them because they make them sneeze, give them watery eyes, and a runny nose. Yep, I'm sure you know we're talking about pollen. And today, I'm on the road visiting with Dr. Vaughn Bryant, a professor of anthropology and the director of the Palynology Laboratory at Texas A&M University. Now, we're going to learn about what palynology is in just a moment. Professor Bryant is a botanist and an expert on pollen. He's also a detective. You know the type of person that helps solve mysteries like you read about or see on television where a crime has been committed. And to find out who's responsible... A person or a group of people look for clues. That's right. He's one of the CSI people that solves not only current crimes, but he's also interested in mysteries that have happened over time. Uh, He's actually an anthropologist, which deals a lot with history. Welcome to the show, Professor Bryant. Good to be here. Let's start off with the very basics. First of all, what's palynology? Well, palynology is the study of pollen and spores. It's a word that combines both. And so rather than having to say pollen and spores, you can just say palynology. All right. And I'm assuming this is something that comes from the Greek or the Latin, right? Almost everything does these days. Yes, palynology comes from the Greek. And what it really means is a very small, dust-like flower. It's essentially, you know, dust. And so that's why they came up with the word. All right. So this dust and this powder that's out there making us sneeze, there's got to be a little bit more to it. What is pollen actually, if we could put it under a microscope, what are we going to be seeing? Well, the pollen is really the sex cells that plants use to get the male sperm from the male plant over to the female. This is, you know, to complete fertilization. Plants can't move around like animals. Animals can go find each other uh, in order to reproduce, but plants can't. So they have to rely on pollen to carry the sex cells from the male plant to the female plant. And this is done sometimes by wind and sometimes by insects. Oh, so they can travel two different ways. All right. Is there a difference between the pollens that are traveling by wind and those that travel with the aid of, saying, hitching a ride on an insect? Yes, there is. The ones that have to rely on the wind have to be aerodynamic. In other words, they have to be shaped so that they travel very easily without much wind resistance. They also are usually pretty small, and they're usually not very ornamented because anything that sticks out, of course, creates wind resistance. So they're usually pretty blah in terms of how they look, but they're very effective in order to carry the pollen from one location to another. Well, how far can these pollens that are spread by wind travel? Most pollen that is dispersed from a plant travels about maybe 100 meters. That's about three football fields. And that's where most of it is going to fall pretty close to the plant, but a small percentage. And it depends, again, on the size of the pollen, the type of the plant. But sometimes pollen can travel, oh, miles. And in some cases, they have found it even 1,000 or 2,000 miles away from its source. 1,000 to 2,000 miles. That's impressive. 
And all this with a little tiny object that, as you said, they're very aerodynamic. So are they round or are they are they cut maybe like some kind of a flying saucer? They come in a number of different shapes. Some of them are round. Some of them are square, actually. Some are triangular shaped. The pine and the spruce and the fir grains actually have two big air bladders. They look very much like Mickey Mouse ears, and they are very effective for traveling on air currents because the air bladders are sort of like balloons, and they help them travel. Now, do all plants use pollen for their sex so that they can reproduce? Well, no. Only the flowering plants use pollen. And the flowering plants, of course, would include the ones that we call angiosperms and the ones that we call gymnosperms. Now, we don't usually think of pine trees as flowering plants, but nevertheless, they are flowering plants. Now, the other kind of plants, such as mosses and ferns and algae and fungi, uh, produce spores. And spores are somewhat different than pollen. I don't want to get into the complexity, but, but spores in these other plants usually have an alternation of generations. They produce sporophytes and gametophytes, and it's a lot more complex. But the important thing to remember is that they do disperse these spores, which are traveled, you know, carried anyway, by wind currents, sometimes by water, and they reproduce into new plants. Let's talk just a little bit about pollen anatomy. When I look at a pollen, if I were to actually cut it in two, is there an actual structure that's pretty common for all pollen? Well, yes. When you, if you were to cut a pollen grain in two, what you would find is a multi-layered outer wall, which we call the exine. It's just a, a word for the outer wall. And uh, this wall is, consists of uh, cellulose. It also consists of various kinds of proteins. But it also has a, a substance called sporopollenin, which is a very durable type of organic material. In fact, it's one of the most durable organic materials produced in nature. It's, in fact, the oldest plant material in the world is about 2.5 billion. Yes, that's billion years old. And what they found back that early are these little tiny round things that look very much like fungal spores. And guess what? They are made of sporopollenin. So sporopollenin is a very durable substance. It's one of the components of the wall of a pollen grain. Now, in addition to the wall, of course, what you're going to find inside the pollen grain are going to be what we call cytoplasm. And in the cytoplasm, there's going to be various kinds of proteins and carbohydrates and fats. But there are also going to be those important DNA components of the sex cells, the sperm. And that's the important part that's going to complete fertilization. Well, you've brought up DNA, and a lot of people think of DNA today, and they think of criminal cases and crime scene investigation. Can you tell us how and why pollen is used in crime scene investigations? Well, yes. It's uh, actually one of the very important components. Now, you have to remember that a lot of pollen is being dispersed by the wind. And in fact, some of these plants are producing literally millions and millions of pollen grains. And so these millions and millions of pollen grains get dispersed by the wind and they get carried around. Some of them reach their intended destination in complete fertilization, but the vast majority, 99.9%, fall harmlessly to the ground. Now, where these fall, of course, are going to depend on what kind of plants are growing there. And so when you get different kinds of plants growing in a region, they're going to produce different kinds of pollen. And so what you're going to recover from a sample at a particular location is going to be different at one location than it is another. And so we call these pollen prints very much like fingerprints. And so the pollen print of Chicago is going to be different than Los Angeles or New York or Atlanta or 
you name it. Every place has a unique composition of pollen because the plants grown in each area are going to be somewhat different. So that's one of the important things that we use for forensics in order to identify where the location of these things are. Right, right. So every every location has a unique place. Therefore, uh, it's easier for you to find out if, for example, a body that's located was actually dumped there from some other place? Well, yeah, you know, actually, there's a very important case that was solved, oh, maybe about five or six years ago. This actually occurred in Hungary. And what happened was uh, they were building a new building in downtown, and they accidentally uncovered a mass grave with about, oh, 40 or 50 people in it. They were all males, and they'd all been shot in the back of the head, which indicated that they'd been executed. Now, the question was, who killed these people? The age of the deposits were right around the end of the Second World War, back in about 1945. So the question was, were these uh, prisoners that were executed by the Germans, or were they executed by the Russians who then captured that area as they were moving across into Germany? Well, turned out that the key to the whole thing was the palynologists. What they did was very carefully collected the dirt inside the nasal passages of a number of these skeletons, and they found that uh, the pollen was from plants that pollinated in the middle to late summer. Well, by the middle to late summer, that whole area was under the Russian occupation. It wasn't by the Germans. The Germans had already left. So, uh, essentially, what Pollen confirmed then uh, was that the Russians actually had executed these prisoners, not the Germans. And so the Russians get blamed and not the Germans. But that's a good case of how Pollen can actually be used in a real important forensic case. Excellent. Excellent. Because you do this, do you testify in courtroom cases? Sometimes you do have to go and testify. And one of the most important things to remember if you have to testify is two things. First of all, to be calm, to be truthful, and to be able to not get flustered by the questions that some people are going to ask you. Because the object in some cases is to try to destroy your credibility. And so you have to be very careful what you say and how you say it. You can't lose your cool. You just have to tell the truth and stick to the subject. I've actually seen a picture of you out in the field collecting pollen samples, and you're wearing what a lot of people might have seen or we call bunny suits in the technology trade because you're covered from head to toe with this special suit and you have a mask on and a hat. What's that all about? Well, you know, if you've ever watched something on TV where they make chips for computers or sometimes in surgery and places like that, the individuals that are doing these tasks have to be absolutely sure that they're not spreading around any germs. Well, in my case, I have to be absolutely certain I'm not accidentally spreading around pollen. Now, the reason we have to get dressed up in these sterile white suits and wear face masks and all of these things and surgical gloves is because if we go into court and somebody were to ask us, well, isn't it possible that some of the pollen you recovered at the crime scene fell off your clothing? Well, we all know that clothing is full of pollen, and so yes, it actually could. So if I'm wearing this outfit, I can say no. I took very special precautions to make sure that this did not happen. Now, you talked about we all have pollen on our clothing. I assume we have pollen in our hair, and we might even have pollen in our lungs. How much pollen is found in the air? Well, you'd be surprised. In the average uh, location, oh, I don't know, let's say anywhere in the United States, particularly during the spring and summer and maybe early fall, you would expect to find anywhere from 10,000 to maybe as much as 100,000 pollen grains per cubic meter of air. Now, 
A cubic meter is one meter in each direction, one cubic meter. The average person during the day would breathe about 7 to 10 cubic meters of air. So let's just say that there were 100,000 pollen grains per cubic meter and you breathe 10 cubic meters. Why, you're breathing a million pollen grains. And that's why some people have these terrible cases of allergy and they suffer horribly with runny noses and eyes and all of this stuff. Yes, and and I'm one of those people that actually during the summertime, I have what's called hay fever. And I've always wondered, why is it called hay fever? Is it really the pollen from the hay that's causing the problem? No, not really. The reason they call it hay fever is because people have suffered from hay fever for centuries. And they generally find it occurs most frequently during the haying season. In other words, when people would go out to cut the hay for the livestock. Now, you know, you plant grasses in the spring. You generally can harvest the first harvest of hay somewhere around May or June, early part of summer, which is also the peak time when most plants are pollinating. So that's called hay fever because it's during the hay collecting season, not because of the pollen from the hay. All right. So the culprit is not the hay. It's the plants that are actually releasing their pollens at the same time of year. All right. Well, that's good. It's good for hay. At least they get off the hook. Well, let's shift gears just a little bit. Let's make this podcast, well, just a little bit more sweet, so to speak. You also do some research with honey. And I was very intrigued by this because I love honey. And I probably have honey every other day. But I didn't really think about the fact that I'm not only taking in a lot of honey, I'm taking in a lot of pollen. Yes, that's true. And if you read the label on some honey, you will find that they'll say, do not feed this to young children under the age of one or sometimes two. It is true that the pollen does have proteins inside of it, and it's those proteins, and they get released in your nose, is what creates hay fever, because the uh, proteins, your body thinks that it's some kind of a foreign bacteria, and it sends a defense system, such as what we call T-cells. It's kind of like your lymph system. That's why you get watery noses. It's trying to flush out and wash out all of these, what they think are bacteria. So what we find then is that this uh, protein then is going to be in the pollen, which is in the honey. And so some people do, in fact, uh, have to be very careful what kind of honey they eat. Now, the, where I get involved is that in the United States, we only produce about uh, oh, one to two-thirds of the honey that we actually consume. We have to import a tremendous amount of honey to satisfy the needs of people in the United States. Now, what happens is that people will pay different prices for different kinds of honey. Premium honey, such as, well, we'll say sourwood or tupelo, cactus, orange blossom, avocado, some of your exotic honeys will cost a lot. And some of the cheaper honeys, which are made just from clover and stuff like that, are pretty cheap. And what happens is some of these importers import honey, and they are paying very good prices for, let's say, orange blossom honey, but what they're really getting is clover. And a lot of times they can't tell the difference, but they don't want to feel like they're getting cheated So they send me samples to find out what actually is in the honey. And I can tell you real quickly from looking at the pollen whether the honey was made from clover or whether it was made from orange blossoms or from avocado. I see. Okay, so you're basically keeping the suppliers honest so that the importers don't get taken. And that means when I buy my honey and I want that exotic honey, I'm going to be getting the right kind of stuff. Well, in some countries, yes. In the United States, no. And the reason for that is because the USDA or the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, does not require what we call truth and labeling for honey. 
If you pick up a bottle of honey and it says pure honey, the only thing that that means is that it cannot have been watered down with uh, water or sugar or anything else. It has to be pure honey. But if you pick up a jar and it says pure orange blossom honey and you later find out that it's really clover honey, which is a lot cheaper, you can't sue anybody because there's no rule that says you have to tell the truth. If you were in the United Kingdom or if you were in Europe, the EU, the European Union, have very strict rules. And so if you buy orange blossom honey in France or Belgium or England and it's not that, you can sue somebody because they demand that the correct uh, label be put on honey. We've learned a little bit about your detective work, but how else do we use pollen in everyday life or in science? Well, listen, you know, one of the most important ways is in finding uh, new resources for oil and gas and coal. Uh, right now, of course, with uh, gasoline running almost four or over $4 a gallon, that becomes very important. And the way they use pollen is that by looking at the pollen that they get from wells, they can tell how old deposits are. They can also tell what kind of uh, organic material used to be there maybe thousands of years ago. Millions of years in many cases. And so, yes, oil and gas exploration are a very important part. They use pollen and they use pollenologists to help them find these resources. At the beginning of the show, we talked about the fact that you're an expert in pollen and you're also in the anthropology department. How do those two combine? You know, what's, what's the link between them? Actually, there's a very good link because people have always needed to eat plants. Plants have always been a very important part of one's diet. Now, what we use pollen for in anthropology is a number of things. First of all, of course, we're very much interested when people begin to uh, you know, cultivate plants like wheat and rye and barley and corn and potatoes. And one of the nice things is all these plants produce pollen. So even though the plants aren't there, we can find the pollen grains in ancient deposits and date these uh, deposits. And so we know that agriculture began you know, maybe 10, 12,000 years ago in certain locations. Another thing that's very important in the way we use pollen is that we very often can tell how they used rooms and architectural structures like the Pueblos in the American Southwest. We can sample the floor surfaces of these Pueblos. We can tell you whether these were used for living quarters, whether they used them as kitchens, or where they stored their uh, plant food like corn and, uh, and beans and uh, you know squash and things like that. Another thing that uh, I'm particularly interested in is uh, Texas A&M, of course, is one of the big centers in the the world for the study of underwater archaeology. And a lot of times when they recover these sunken shipwrecks from hundreds of uh, sometimes thousands of years ago, uh, we can, can recover material inside of various kinds of containers and down in the bilge. And uh, we can then look for the pollen and very often tell you where the ships came from because the pollen from that port got settled on the ship. We can tell you a lot about what the ship was carrying, the cargoes, because the cargoes very often had pollen in them. And so even though the cargoes are gone, the pollen grains, because they're so durable, are still left behind. So, you know, those are just a few of the ways uh, that we use pollen in archaeology and anthropology. So I'd have to say that pollen is an amazing storyteller, so to speak. Oh, yes. It's very much like being a detective. I mean, it's just like CSI, only we're doing it with archaeology. Marvelous. Now, when you were talking about the proteins in the pollen that actually cause the allergic reaction, and this is why you have to be careful about uh, feeding honey to very young children, what I had always thought was, especially seeing these pictures of pollen, especially the ones that look like the puffer fish and, and have those exotic spines on them, I thought that was really what was causing the watery eyes and the runny nose. So I'm wrong. 
Yes, it's actually the protein inside the pollen grain. Each pollen grain, of course, carries a lot of protein because the protein makes up the DNA and the other important aspects uh, that are needed for fertilization. And so what happens is that when the pollen grain ruptures in your nose, it breaks open and this protein, this inside cytoplasm, then comes out and gets absorbed into your system through your skin and through your nasal membranes. And then your body picks up this strange protein. It thinks it is a bacteria and it immediately sends its defense system into overdrive. And so the more pollen you take in, the more your defense system kicks in. And this is why you get stopped up because all that fluid collects in your nasal passages and stops everything up because your body thinks that you're being invaded by a harmful bacteria. Right. So we have this influx of histamines, and that's why I go to the store and buy antihistamines. That's true. That's exactly what you have to buy. And this is why Dristat and all of these other things become so important, because what it does is it tells your system, don't worry about this stuff. It's okay. (laughs) All right. Well, on this show, we always ask our guest scientists three questions. So let's start off. When did you first figure out that you were going to be a scientist? What was the spark? Well, you know, I think like a lot of people, when I first went off to college, I didn't have any idea that I would be doing today what I, you know, thought of when I first entered college. When I went to college, to be honest, the reason I went to college, I didn't want to go to work. Uh, (laughs) My father gave me a choice. He said, either go to college or go to work. I said, I'll go to college. (laughs) But I first started majoring in journalism. I wanted to be a reporter because it seemed like an exotic thing to do. You go talk to important people. But then after a while, I found that I didn't really like that too much. And so since I'd lived in a lot of different places, I went into geography because I thought, well, gee, that ought to be easy. I've been to a lot of places in my life. And I studied geography for quite a while. And then after I finished, I sort of wandered over into anthropology because I could draw maps and the anthropologists needed somebody to draw maps. And after all, that's what geographers do. And then I was studying anthropology and going along okay until one day somebody came in and said that they needed somebody to work with palynologists. And, you know, I I said, well, does it pay anything? They said, well, yes, we'll hire you for a whole year if you want to help the palynologists. And I said, well, sure, I'll be happy to do that. And then when I left, I had to go find a dictionary and look up the word because I didn't have the foggiest idea what a palynologist was or did. Well, that's actually what I had to do as well. I had to look up palynology because I didn't know what it was either. Okay, well, you found your way. It sounds to me like you didn't really know you wanted to be a scientist. You just followed this curvy road, and that's a way a lot of people go. It's not necessarily a straight line. I think it's very important that for anybody to keep your options open and don't just automatically exclude something because you don't know what it is. You've got to try it. If you don't like it, you can try something else. You know, you have to be brave. You can't just uh, live in a little closed world. So my advice to anybody would be follow your instincts and uh, just try things out. And, you, you know, if you try things out, you may find something you really like to enjoy doing. Well, I know you enjoy doing this, but guess what? I'm going to take it all away from you. You can't be a scientist. You're not going to be a palynologist. You're going to have to get away from anything that's like that. If you couldn't be a scientist, what would you be or what would you do? Probably if I wasn't a scientist, I'd be a farmer. And and the reason I'd be a farmer is because as a kid, I used to live in Alaska and we had to do some farming and I learned to grow potatoes and cabbage and strawberries and stuff like that. And it was a lot of fun because I could plant things, I could see them come up and then we could harvest them. And I thought that was great fun. But I'll tell you one thing, being a scientist is a lot easier than being a farmer because farmers work very, very hard. It's not that we don't work hard. 
<laughs> most farmers I know have to get up before dawn and they're still working long after dark. So I much prefer being a scientist. Well, it's interesting that you'd mentioned farming because I'd have to say that as an occupation or a career, farmers really are scientists. Well, yes. You know, quite honestly, if you go way back in time and you look, you know, you have to stop and think, how did people learn how to domesticate plants? How did they learn to grow wheat and cotton and corn and beans and all these things? Well, they were early people that were out there watching plants grow, and they eventually decided that, well, maybe they could try to cultivate some of these. And, and that's kind of how farming got started. And I think another thing that a lot of people may not recognize or remember, unless you studied well in biology, is that our whole system of genetics, all we know about genetics and everything, actually started with a monk by the name of Mendel. And Mendel was, uh, lived in Czechoslovakia. And uh, in the monastery, as a hobby, he grew peas, these little garden peas, and he watched them grow, and he noticed that they were different, and he crossed them back and forth. And eventually, what Mendel brought into the whole study was mathematics. And so by bringing in mathematics and then observing very closely how they grew, he worked out genetics. And, you know, this is uh, the beginning. Of course, later, you know, Watson and Crick found DNA and the double helix and everything. But it all started with Mendel, and that was because he was watching plants. So I think farmers are very aware of plants and how they grow and, and probably know a lot more about plants than most people. Yeah, so Mendel, uh, just as a reminder, if you haven't done your pundit squares, that's uh, where you start blending this math and science or math and biology and you get your genetics. All right, one more question. What advice would you have for someone who either they're young and they are thinking about a career in, in science or palynology, or maybe it's someone out there that uh, wants to switch careers? What would you say? Well, you know, I lecture a lot to high school students that come to Texas A&M. They, they come here to look over the university, and they're thinking about maybe coming here to go to college. And my advice to all of them is be aware of what's going on in the world. It's going to be your generation that is going to save us. Our generation has really messed things up. And, uh, you know, this whole system with uh, climatic warming and all of this thing, it's going to be up to the next generation to change this. So my advice to anybody would be to study, keep your eyes open, and work hard and, you know, give it a try. Uh, you can always say you don't want to do it later, but if you don't try it, you'll never know. Okay, well, in that case, we're going to be say think green and think in a flexible manner. Professor Bryant, thank you again for sitting down and taking some time out to talk to us about pollen. We now know what palynology is, and we know it's got a lot of links to a, a lot of different areas in science. Hey, it was a real pleasure working with you. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Dr. Yvonne Bryant, Professor of Anthropology and the Director of the Palynology Laboratory at Texas A&M University. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University, and is usually recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. For today's program, we're on the campus of Texas A&M in College Station, Texas, where the Botanical Society of America... BioQuest and Texas A&M are running a wonderful workshop for high school educators as well as high school students. For two weeks, educators will be learning about new and innovative ways to teach science. And the second week, they're joined by some high school students that are eager to learn about pollen and the science surrounding pollen. You can tell there's a lot of that just from this show. I'm planning on having some of the students do field reports for Ask a Biologist, so be sure to look for their stories in a future episode. And remember... 
Even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.